ain't misbehaving. Take it, James B. few pop tunes in the 20th century have launched a dance craze as wild as the Charleston, a tune that still invokes images of jazz age flappers and Chaplin silent movies, bathtub gin and the great Gatsby. The gentle genius who wrote the Charleston, James P. Johnson, remains all but invisible today and is rarely remembered by anyone except a handful of musicians. The Charleston was Johnson's big hit, but he wrote many far more ambitious compositions. Johnson may be thought of as both the last major pianist of the classical ragtime era and the first major jazz pianist. He is considered an indispensable bridge between ragtime and jazz time. Welcome to Dead Wax 78s. I'm your host, Sean, and you know, this is the podcast where we're going to talk about old timey music and all that old recording technology. This episode is called James P. Johnson, Ragtime to Jazz Time. Harlem Stride is distinguished from ragtime by several characteristics. Ragtime introduced sustained syncopations into piano music, but stride pianists built a more freely swinging rhythm. With a certain degree of anticipation of the left bass hand by the right melody hand, a form of tension and release in the patterns played by the right hand worked within the beat generated by the left. Stride more frequently had elements of the blues as well as harmonies usually found in the works of classical ragtime. It was in this that Johnson distinguished himself from his colleagues, in that, in his own words, he could think a trick a minute. Comparison of many of Johnson's recordings of a given tune over the years demonstrates variations from one performance to another, characterized by respect for the melody and reliance upon devices such as repeated chords, serial thirds, interpolated scales on which the improvisations were based. James Price Johnson was born in New Brunswick, New Jersey in 1894. Johnson's father, William H. Johnson, was a store helper and mechanic, while his mother, Josephine Harrison, was a maid. Now, Josephine was part of the choir at the Methodist Church and was also a self-taught pianist. Now, Johnson later cited the popular African-American songs and dances he heard at home and around the city as early influences on his musical taste. He grew up to be an unassuming man with a gentle disposition. 
He had a perfect pitch and a powerful left hand. He was quick learner at the piano and he practiced hard. Johnson said he would spend hours playing piano in the dark to become completely familiar with the keyboard. He would sometimes put a bedsheet over the keyboard and force himself to play difficult pieces through the covering in order to develop his sense of touch. Some of these tales may be mythical, but Johnson's originality and virtuosity stand out over a century later. Here's part one, the 1922 QRS piano roll, Muscle Shoal Blues. Johnson was a pioneer in the stride playing of the jazz piano. Stride piano was often been described as an orchestral style and indeed 
In contrast to Boogie Woogie Blues piano playing, Johnson honed his craft playing night after night, catering to the egos and idiosyncrasies of the many singers that he encountered, which necessitated being able to play a song in any key. He developed into a sensitive accompanist, the favorite accompanist of Estelle Waters and Bessie Smith. Waters wrote in her autobiography that working with musicians, such as the most especially Johnson, made you want to sing until your tonsils fell out. Johnson was well established in the relatively small world of Harlem Stride Piano by the 1920s when he took a talented teenager by the name of Fats Waller under his wing, gave him piano lessons and a home away from home. Fats Waller's bubbling showbiz personality captured the imagination of the nation and he soon became swept up in the bright lights of fame and fortune. But a deep bond of affection remained between the two giants of stride piano until Waller's death at a very early age. Johnson's influence can be readily heard in the Waller tune, Smashing Thirds. The majority of his phonograph recordings in the 1920s and early 1930s were done for Black Swan, founded by Johnson's friend W.C. Handy, and for Columbia. In 1922, Johnson branched out and became the musical director for the review Plantation Days. Uh, this review took him to England for four months in 1923. And during the summer of 1923, Johnson, along with the help of lyricist Cecil Mack, wrote the review Running Wild. This review stayed on tour for more than five years, as well as showing itself on Broadway. Here's part two, Carolina Shout.
1917, Johnson cut the first in a series of historical piano rolls for the Aeolian and QRS music roll companies. Three years later in 1920, Johnson met George Gershwin while both artists were making piano rolls at about $100 a session. These two great figures of American music came from vastly different backgrounds, separated by enormous racial barriers, but they shared a mutual ambition to write serious music on large American themes. Both continued to study classical music while playing and composing jazz and popular tunes. Gershwin was a great admirer of Johnson and the rest of the Harlem piano men. Gershwin frequently crossed a race barrier to hear them play. Now George Gershwin acknowledged his high esteem for Johnson and the enormous influence Johnson's work had on his very own. In the Depression era, Johnson's career slowed down somewhat as the swing era began to gain popularity with the African-American communities. Johnson had a hard time adapting and his music would ultimately become unpopular. The cushion of a modest but steady income from his royalties as a composer allowed him to devote a significant amount of time to the furtherance of his education, as well as the realization of his desire to compose serious orchestra music. Johnson began to write for musical reviews and composed many now forgotten orchestral music pieces, although by this time he was an established composer with a significant body of work. Here's part three, a 1921 OK record, Keep Off the Grass. Thank you. 
Johnson suffered a stroke in August 1940. When Johnson returned to action in 1942, he began a heavy schedule of performing, composing, and recording, leading several small live groups, now often with racially integrated bands, led by musicians such as Eddie Condon, uh, Yank Lawson, Edmund Hall. In 1944, Johnson and Willie the Lion Smith participated in stride piano contests in Greenwich Village from August to December. He recorded for jazz labels including Ash, Black and White, Blue Note, Commodore, Circle and Decca. In 1945, Johnson performed with Louis Armstrong and heard his works at Carnegie Hall and the Old Town Hall in New York City. He was a regular guest and featured soloist on Rudy Blush's This Is Jazz broadcast, as well as Eddie Condon's town hall concerts. And in the late 1940s, Johnson had a variety of jobs, including, like, jam sessions. Now, with the death of his protege and dear friend Fats Waller in late 1943, Johnson became severely depressed and he went into private mourning for months before recording eight of Waller's tunes for Decca in 1944. Johnson made his final recordings in 1949. Johnson permanently retired from performing after suffering another severe paralyzing stroke in 1951. Johnson survived financially on his songwriting royalties while he was paralyzed and he passed away in 1955 when he was just 61 in Jamaica, New York. He's buried at the Mount Olivet Cemetery in Maspeth, Queens. Perfunctory obituaries appeared in even the New York Times. The pithiest and most angry remembrance of Johnson was written by John Hammond and it appeared in Downbeat under the title Talent of James P. Johnson Went Unappreciated. Here's part four, Worried and Lonesome Blues.
America has slowly come to recognize Johnson's genius. He was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1970 and the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers in 2007. His personal papers and scrapbooks are preserved at the Rutgers University Library. A century after his birth, Johnson's portrait appeared on the United States postage stamp in a set of nine other jazz greats. His native talent was incubated and nurtured in a rich American melting pot. Foundational to jazz and American popular music, his effervescent keyboard style pioneering black musicals, popular songs, and symphonic works propelled African American music into the modern era. Thank you for listening. This has been Deadwax78. I'm your host, Sean, and, you know, I'll catch you on the flip side.